Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. Getting back to your career arc, going back to the 90s and producing all these records. So what was the next step in that process? The next step in that process was that another good friend of mine by the name of Tony Axel, he's a bass player in town, you may know him, called me one night and he says, do you know Michael Baker? And I said, uh, I heard his name. He says... Well, you know, he's a drummer, and uh, he recently became Whitney Houston's my, uh, musical director. And I said, oh, okay. And he says, he's looking for somebody in the Twin Cities that can produce and arrange, so I gave him your name, so you might get a call from him. So Michael called me from Germany and talked to me about a song that she was going to sing for an award show in New York, and it was a small orchestra. And it was 1999 when I got that call. I had Finale in the box since 1991, and I never took it out because the manual scared me. (laughs) So I continued writing by hand. And he asked me to do this arrangement, and I wrote it by hand and had it copied, and he took it to New York, and uh, and I got paid and everything, but I didn't hear from him for the next five or six months. Hmm. So I said, yeah, I probably butchered it. They used to a different kind of thing. Never mind. So six months later, I get a call from him. This time he's in Chicago, and he's waiting for a flight to Minneapolis, And he says, oh, yeah, that arrangement was great. Anyway, uh, I wanted to talk to you about (laughs) another thing. Um, (laughs) Whitney is going to sing in uh, Radio City for uh, some sports event, and they don't want to do the national anthem. They want to do God Bless America. And I just got a call now waiting for the flight to Minneapolis, and they wanted me to reroute and and either go to new york or la to produce it and i want oh to oh my gosh i want to try to produce it in minneapolis do you think we can do it together you think we can find studios and musicians to do this said no problem so he came we worked on that song uh ricky peterson played keyboards i did all the arrangement and the programming and then he took it to nashville and had um kirk willem play some tenor on that of course and uh she sang this in radio city and i thought man this is big time but but in a way in in a way it was because that kind of marked the beginning of the next 11 years where I became the arranger for most of her live stuff. Actually, all the live stuff that she did and mm. TV and everything. Wow. Incredible. What an honor. Yeah, it was incredible. But um, Michael was uh, really, really good at, at that particular role because I remember working on this very first arrangement. I was really frustrated because I didn't have the experience of working with 
with an artist maintaining the integrity of that particular artist. Mm. I started mm. doing the programming, and Michael would tell me something like, uh, I don't know what you did here, but this is not a Whitney chord. I said, well, so wow. tell me, what do you mean by Whitney chord? Uh, play it. I want to sing it for a second. I'm, and he sings. He sings really well. So he starts uh -huh. singing with that, and he says, you see what I mean? When you got to that measure... That doesn't sound like Whitney to me. Here, I'm going to sing it again. Pay attention. And somehow, in a very miraculous way, I was channeling, and I knew exactly what it was talking about mm. because now you hear it, and you cannot associate that chord with Whitney. Wow. And it became really, really clear what chord it needs to be. You don't know which chord that was and what you changed it from and to, do you? No, you don't I, remember, do I you? I don't remember, but doing these arrangements was really going back to school because there was a point where I was brought to New York to do some of the stuff there and watch the rehearsals. And, and there is a piano player that was her main keyboard player. His name is Shedrick Mitchell. Yeah. He's one of my favorite piano players, if not the favorite. Wow. High praise. And I kept paying attention to how he voiced things and how he harmonized and reharmonized things on the spot. And to me, that gig was the school because I realized that with all the talent and all the knowledge that you have, nothing really adds up unless you can associate a style harmonically, melodically, and, and all that. Did you tour with Whitney Houston's band as well? Yeah, I did two short tours with her and one major long tour. The last one was um, six months long. So do you have any stories about the kind of the lifestyle of, of touring and being in that kind of environment? Since I was an outsider this whole experience, I'm not, I'm not a regular touring musician. It was almost always observing for me. It's like, what is it like? And the, the people that impressed me most in those tours are the crew. These are the professional people that are just there no matter what. Keyboard programmer and guitar techs and drummer, mm. drum techs. And, you know, these guys had it together in, in a completely different level. Uh, something I never experienced before. And good people, you know, people that are there to help you and no matter what. I, I wanted to go back real quick <clears throat> to what what you were saying, Adi, about uh, uh, when, you, the, when you went back to school. Like, what does that mean for you associating the harmonically? Like, could you say specifically what it, like, not necessarily like, you know, no major seven chords or something. Because there's that one one, sense. one story in the very first arrangement that I did for her, the one that I wrote by hand. Yeah. We, we rehearsed it five years later for that tour. And Michael stopped me in one place and he says, Hold one second. I was wondering, ever since you wrote this arrangement, I was wondering about this one bar. What do you have in that bar? So here's what I had in that bar it was a one minor chord. And Whitney was riffing on flat six major pentatonic. And uh -huh. it always bothered me that... Oh, and, and there, was a, there was a minor six in the chord, 
in whoever uh, produced it in the first place. And when she was singing those riffs in A-flat pentatonic, that C minor 6 was really clashing. So right. I thought, uh, what do I do there? I don't want it to sound like this, especially if I'm doing orchestral arrangements. So there was one place in the arrangement that, in that measure that I adjusted from C minor to A-flat over C just to, uh -huh. avo to avoid this clash. And harmonically, it was working fine. The A and the the A and the A flat. So I I felt like, you know, that was a solution. That's something that most of the arranger friends I have would make a choice like that. And he asked me, what did I do? And I explained to him. And he says, yeah, I can't go and explain it to 7 million people that bought the CD, so let's go back to the original chord. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So I learned that there are forces much, much bigger than the harmonic rules. Mm. And mm. when the harmonic rules don't match the story, guess what happens? I think that's how blues was formed. Wow. You know, so maybe, wow. maybe in 100 years, they'll have a course of teaching how a flat six pentatonic really works with one minor six, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> But those kind of things were always painful for me to do because it's like stuff that I disagree with, yet that's the product that everybody is used to. And now working for The Voice, it's just like any song. You know, you have to deal with that all the time. Huh. Right. Yeah. Well, she likes it this way. And, uh, you know, we got to yeah. make sure she sings it well and, yeah, all that. Exactly. And there's another interesting story that was um, another story in my uh, school days at the Whitney years. Mm -hmm. You know, when you write for rhythm section, um, especially in the pop style, if you or, or in jazz for that matter, if you have a couple bars that are used as a sample of how you want that groove to happen, mm -hmm. and it's, and it's um, obvious enough, then you can put a simile and slashes with chords on top. Whitney was doing Heartbreak Hotel. And Heartbreak Hotel is a slow ballad with a triple feel, uh, drums and bass for the groove. Mm -hmm. And the pattern, in order to be notated right, had a 30-second note run. So I'm trying to be friendly here. And I wrote the first <laughs> measure. And then slashes follow that pattern. You know, because mm -hmm. that, that's how I treat my friends, you know. Mm -hmm. The bass player in that tour was Tom Barney. Tom Barney uh, was a bass player for Steely Dan and things like that. And we started to rehearse this tune. We were very friendly for the whole thing. But as soon as I put that chart in front of him, I see him kind of from the corner of my eye, very agitated and going, the guy's oh, not no. happy. And eight bars into the tune, he takes the part and he throws it up in the air and he goes, I can't do this. And I said, hold on a second. Tom, what, what do you need? He says, I'm not going to sit here and, and fake a part and when she comes to the rehearsal, I'm going to be the, the guy fired here. I need to know what, what to play. Don't put changes in front of me. I want to know what to play. I'm going, okay, work on something else. I'll, I'll go and get this done. They move to the next tune. I went to a side room and transcribed that bass line. 
and I'm looking at what I'm transcribing, and I'm thinking this starts to look like a cello sonata. It's not. Uh, huh. It's not a friendly rhythm section bass part. Mm. Now he's going to yell at me because uh, it's not human to play that. Huh. You know, because the part was programmed oh. in the recording. Oh. He may have been playing this on uh, keyboard bass too. So I went back and I put that part in front of him and they rehearse it and he goes, see, that's what I was looking for. And I did a little digging later and I realized, oh, he's the first call bassist for Lion King in New York. Oh. Okay. Uh, so, so he can read. He, he always so, needs notes. But you know, no matter what you do, you may find that it doesn't work for somebody. Because huh. I was in right. so many situations where I had to write it, but I also had to teach it to whoever was a little slower with. I, I played a jazz festival in Switzerland in, in 2000, and Buster Williams was the bass player. So I, yeah. I, I did all the arrangements, and I'm trying to pick up the first arrangement. The, the show was the music of Kurt Weil. Mm. I'm trying to find the one chart that is the easiest so so we can break the ice nice with all these great players right 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 so i had an arrangement very simple arrangement for speak low that the only thing that i did not think about was that it started with a unison with bass clarinet acoustic bass and piano right from the get-go and that's the first thing that buster williams was stumbling through Mm. i'm going now what? Do I stop and, and single him out? No, I'm going to keep going. So we kept going. We finished that song. And I was about to move to the next song. And he calls me and he says, can you sing that line for me? And I oh, said, sure. man. Sure. I played it once for him. He says, thanks, man. So good. Wow. i never been in, in such nice breaking the ice situation where nobody makes any excuses everybody's there for a reason and there are strengths and weaknesses that everybody has and he says mm. sing the line for me and he, he he played it you know what a what a human based approach that's yeah, that's beautiful he, he was a he was a fabulous guy to hang out with really and what a player my goodness so it seems like throughout your all of your experiences it seems like you know from one musician or or collaborators to the next what you know what you thought was uh this is the way that you can do it i can count on this you know you work with someone else and then all of a sudden they work a totally different way mm-hmm. and their approach to either reading or or learning the music is just it's it's not the same and so do you tell me about that a little bit yeah i had uh a few examples like this, and some of these examples are with, with uh, big names, too. Uh, there was an organ player that lived in the Twin Cities. His name is Jack, was Jack McDuff. I don't know if you ever Sure, heard. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So Jack was an arranger. He used to write his own arrangements, and he used to come on Sundays to watch the big band and then call me to ask how to transpose to a baritone. And that question would come every once in a while. But my assumption was that he's a great reader because he writes. Mm. In 99, the Minnesota Orchestra did a tribute to him 
to give him the respect for being part of the Minnesota community of musicians while he's a world-class mm. known player. Mm-hmm. So they asked me to do three arrangements for him for the orchestra, to feature him with the orchestra and Doc Severinsen. Perfect. And, and they said, all you need to do is take three songs from a CD that he produced and arranged and expand it to the orchestra. Don't change anything in the form and the harmony or anything. Just keep that. said, okay, that's sure. easy. And he asked me to come and work the arrangements when I finished. He wanted me to come to his apartment and, and go over the arrangements. And I did, and everything seemed fine. And we, he came to the rehearsal, and he took a good look at the 80 players that are about to play his music, and he froze and he didn't know what songs he was doing and what keys and what form. And, and simply, it wasn't happening. And Doc is counting. Oh, my goodness. In, he's trying to get anything going and nothing. He just didn't know what to do there. And it was a rehearsal in the morning for a gig at night wow. for the next uh, three nights. And of course, Doc is turning to me and goes, did you prepare him? And I said, yeah. He says, do you have any suggestions here? And I said, uh, I'm going to sit next to him and uh, guide him through this. So I sat next to Jack. I said, okay, count off. And I tell Jack, okay, we're going to start with eight bars intro and then you play blues in G. He says, okay. And start the intro and he's playing blues in G and said okay I'm gonna count four for a stop time break B7 okay one two three four bars you know B7 pop okay E7 you know I'm giving him all these clues okay we're gonna go now to rhythm changes bridge in that section okay and he's playing he's just like taking instructions reading he doesn't look at, he's not looking at his chart just taking clues from me. So managed to go through the rehearsal, and Doc is feeling pretty good about this. He says, okay, are you working the next three nights? I said, no. He said, uh, we're wearing black jackets and stuff like this. Can, can you come to the shows? And here, there's going to be a seat right here. Do the same thing. Yeah. There we go. It was fun. <laughs> what a gig. That is fun, yeah. It's cool. <laughs> and he relaxed after that, and he sounded great. So. Everyone's different. Everybody, everybody is different, and you know the feeling of when you're in the groove and when you're out and, and you can't find your way in. And, mm. you know, we've mm-hmm. all been in these situations, you know. We just did an interview with our um, professor from North Texas, Rich DeRosa, who's worked with a lot of uh, artists as well. And one thing he, he said in the interview is, you know, no matter how good a musician is, as an arranger, you can always find something that exposes them, you know. Yeah. And so that's one of the... Uh, the things I took away yeah. from that, which is, you know, very similar to what, what we're kind of discussing now. Yeah. And and Bob Friedman had a really good approach to something like this. Every time he would sense that there is a possibility that somebody would freeze, he says, can you go and prepare him? Just go over, make sure that he feels comfortable and whatever it takes. Bob had that story that... When he was uh, Lena Horne's musical director, she was doing a TV special with Harry Belafonte. And one of the arrangements she sang was, I want to be happy, you know. And Mm -hmm. Bob went from 3-4 to 4-4. 
swing and back and she just couldn't handle that and he stood behind the camera and did this basically I'm showing her showing you guys uh cradle kind of thing yeah yes with the right baby. for our, for our Tell listeners <laughs> yeah. um basically moving like when you hold a baby yeah rocking yeah. a baby for the baby. three four da, yeah. da, 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 swing kind of the symbol sure and and she caught that um track. those cues yeah so whatever you need to do especially you know we have to come up with the creative solutions to to those kind of situations <laughs> yeah isn't that the truth yeah maybe there's some overlap but uh you did some work for Whitney Houston for a long time, and uh, well, what was after that, or maybe during the same well, time? Well, a lot happened around the same time because I suddenly was exposed to a lot of new situations and new people, and now I was working closely with Michael Baker and Clive Davis, big time pop producer, sure. called Michael one day and says, uh, "I really like the way Whitney shows looks like." I'm doing the 25th anniversary of Arista Records and Aretha Franklin is going to have her own segment and I want you to produce it because I wanted to have that kind of sound to it. Yeah, so Michael called me to do the arrangement and he brought the arrangement to New York. I stayed behind, so he calls me. She loves it. She wants us to do more arrangements. So us meaning me, but he's the guy <laughs> delivering it. Right. He didn't wow. want that position. But he got uh, framed like that. Yeah, yeah. And for the next uh, couple of years, I was a ghostwriter for Michael until there was one session that he couldn't make. I came to New York. Finally, she discovered who does what. And <laughs> for, the next, for the next three years, I was on um, speed dial with Aretha Franklin. You know, I would wow. get calls from her. I would call her back. She would fly me places. I would bring arrangements and... It was a beautiful run. Wow. Crazy, too, but it was really... We almost got to work on an ARIA album with a symphony orchestra where Arif Martin was about to produce and arrange half, and she asked me to arrange half, and I already wrote one arrangement for ARIA, and um, it looked good for a minute, and then he got sick and passed, and um, she moved on to other things. Oh, yeah. wow. So when you were, um, I mean, to me, the idea of, of uh, Aretha Franklin just calling you randomly is, um, is mind-blowing. But what was that like? I mean, what kind of stuff would you guys talk about? I can play yeah. for you a recording of a cassette. Oh, wow. She sent me talking over the, the aria. It was that, you know. I, I can't describe it, but once you hear it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Huh. It was like, hmm. all right, that's what I'm looking for, and uh, here, follow my instruction. And it was um, so normal to work with her, cool. even more than with uh, Whitney, because Whitney was always sheltered and only would come to the last rehearsal and mm. doesn't mingle a lot with a lot of the players. Mm -hmm. Sure, Aretha, Aretha was just. I went to see her show in Boston when I lived there, and. Took my old ki older kids with me to the show. 
and met with the players before the show. So the musical director asked me, does Aretha know you're here? I said, no. He says, okay, um, I'll, I'll let her know that you're here. I said, okay, that's good. So hmm. before the show, he comes back and says, Aretha asked that you stay after the show because she wants to take you guys to, uh, to legal seafood. So here we are oh with the gosh. whole entourage in Boston going to legal seafood. She's feeding me and my kids. And so wow. it was that kind of, it's unreal. That is so cool. That's a special relationship. Yeah, and it, it died out somehow. I don't know exactly how and why, and sure. I moved, and I, I don't know. You know, stories like this, just the, just the fact that you have an opportunity like this is incredible. Of course. But you course. guys, you guys are on your way. You'll see. You'll see. The, <laughs> the, the level of writing that I'm hearing from you guys is, you'll That's get there. That's too sweet. Thank yeah. you, Adi. That means a lot coming from you. We're so glad that, that you're sharing these stories and recording them and documenting them and sharing them with the uh, 10 or 15 people who are going to listen to this. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but even if just for posterity's sake, but there's going to be a number of people who listen to this and who are going to be blessed and who uh, are really going to be touched by your stories and, and, uh, and your experiences. So thank you for for being so open and, and sharing all of this. With Absolutely. The, with the you know, it's, it's my pleasure. And I tell, I tell this to Aaron every once in a while. I'm sure that you can agree about the fact that much of what we do is almost like a solitary confinement. Uh-huh. You're with yourself making all these decisions and much of people don't like you don't even know about. Because you send your work and you're at the mercy of whoever ordered that. And the only thing that you do know is if you get another gig from that entity or not. But there is no, there's really not a lot of uh, feedback. When you get to talk to people that do the kind of work that you do and really experience that. Uh, having that shared experience about how we feel about uh, certain approaches or lines or uh, voicings or whatever it is, uh, sonorities in the orchestra, whatever, that is so powerful, you know. So I really appreciate you guys for asking me to do this because this is what I love to talk about. It is a shared experience. It's a small club, but it is. It's a. Yeah. Uh, it's one that shares a strong bond. Well, you're mm-hmm. right because it's such a solitary art form as you know composers arrangers it's easy to to be isolated like you know as a jazz player well we're all jazz players here there's a certain social community that goes with going out and playing a gig or going to a, another person's gig or sitting in with them on the bandstand or doing a jam session that uh it's just there's a natural social component built in but when you're arranging in your house or in your apartment or wherever it is you're not forced into that and sometimes you're just sending off your work to be played by someone else so i think one of the aspects of this podcast that we're really shooting for is connecting with more people who do what we do and kind of creating that sense of community so i think it's it's great to just hear these stories and and just uh and hear how you got to be where you are in the business and and uh and enjoy the reputation that you do and and get to do the gigs that you do and something to look up to and aspire for as you are saying that i realize that 
the perception that we all have about what we do compared to what other people think about what you do are so different. Mm. Yes. And I can't help it by, but thinking that I spent several years trying to feel, to get myself to a place where I feel ready to deliver in, in what, what I'm trying to do. And suddenly I realized that all this effort was not in line with all the changes that are happening in the music business. And suddenly knowledge is not always working for you. And knowledge yeah. sometimes get in the way of things. So you have to tone down things that you know. And mm. yeah, I don't know if you experienced that too, but... Definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, sometimes the, the presence of a fourth note instead of just a three note, it mm -hmm. changes everything. Yes, yeah. I don't know if that's the knowledge you're talking about or even just the being perceived. Like when you're the arranger in the room, you're like, oh, you know, he's going to know the most. But sometimes if you try to make it too much, then it's uh, whatever you're saying to a situation. I think it's something that would show up every once in a while when you are working with a singer on something. When you are almost can, can see the music visually in a very analytic way. You can actually see the score and you can see the chord progression as it happens in real time. And you have a flat note or you have a wrong note or something like that. You can go right away in real time and, and name it, what, what you're doing wrong or what you need to do. But taking that kind of approach sometimes is counterproductive. Because you have to come up from, from a completely emotional place to, to get a good performance from somebody and, and not make it about the, the theory behind. Mm -hmm. It's examples like this that I'm talking about. Yeah, I can relate to that because I can definitely tend to err on the side of being overly theoretical sometimes. And then, uh, you know, sometimes I'll just sit down and write something just without thinking about what's behind it. And, it. and it comes out really cool and in some ways more organic and just based on the sound of something instead of thinking about what's the mode or what's the scale or what's the, you know, whatever. Yeah, and that's, that gets better with, with the ears too because mm. uh, the more we get away from how we study that material and the more we deal with sound, you can always go back and analyze it, but mm -hmm. you're not driven by the theory to write something. So speaking of theory and learning that sort of schooled approach, education has been a, a large part of your career as well. And I know, I know you taught at Berkeley and McNally Smith College of Music here in the Twin Cities, which unfortunately is no longer here. But can you talk a little bit about that aspect of your career? Yeah, so, you know, back to that uh, correspondence course, there was something so foundational about how material was taught and how the chordal analysis and, and everything related to chords and scales and the correlation between the two, that even though that came from, from a, the, the world of jazz, it's something that, it's the landscape for everything that we do. And, you know, we all work with classical musicians that learned a lot of theory, but some of that stuff is really foreign to, to a lot of them. And for that reason, not everyone is as, as skilled in composition. 
So to me, the, the connection between composition and really knowing your landscape is essential because you're going for a particular sound, you know the structure, you know how to, um, to form it in a certain way because you have the, the foundation behind it. And uh, there's a lot to be said about the opposite approach when people are not coming from strong background of education, yet they have such natural neck for composing or improvising. It's two schools of thought, but at the same time, one is not necessarily better than, than the other because if you deliver, it doesn't really matter how you arrive to that. But in my case, I can tell you that most of my knowledge in improvisation came from, from theory. So when did you start teaching at Berkeley? Was that your first college gig? That was uh, after teaching at McNally years before. Okay, but, sure. Um, it was my first full-time, which was a big lifestyle change. Did that limit the other ki- kinds of other projects that you could take? or to, to a point, yeah, it did. And at the same time, there's certain comfort that comes with a gig like this where you can be a little more picky about what you do and, and allow yourself to not be available for certain things. And now I'm back to the opposite. I'm back to yeah, I'm I'm full timer now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you were kind of going back and forth between Minnesota and Boston, right? This is the house that we lived in before. We uh-huh. tried to sell the house for the move, and uh, it was right when the market crashed. Okay, sure. So we can't, we couldn't make that happen. And at first, we lived there for a couple of years with the house being rented. And then, actually, there were two segments where I was flying a whole semester every week to to work, you know. So that was hard. Mm. And what uh, what was your course load? What what kind of classes were you teaching at the school? In the first semester, they had me do arranging one, arranging two, and a couple production classes. And the second semester, I did big band, their version of orchestration, which was writing for large ensemble. So it was more uh, woodwinds and strings and percussion. And there were a couple other courses of uh, production for writers that I used to do. So these were a little more project-based classes where you talk more about production and some technology and Stuff like that. Did you enjoy working with students and seeing their growth? I loved it. I loved it because uh, usually people that are going to colleges like Berkeley, and especially if they're making the upper-level courses, they are there for a reason. Mm. And I always was in awe of of the line that I would have for my office hours because I never experienced anything like this. My office hours were the busiest time in, in my school experience. I wow. always had people. And they were working on projects. They had great questions. They were interested. They were driven. Uh, one of my students, his name is Lenny Wee. Actually, he wasn't really my student because he, he studied with me one course, and then I started hiring him. <laughs> so, oh, wow. And Lenny Wee is a, is a writer from uh, Singapore, 
and uh, he moved to LA after the after he graduated, and he's one of the first call arrangers in Hollywood now for everything. Tonight Show, um, American Idol, all the award shows, Grammys, and name it. Mm. Every now and then he tells me that he played keyboard in, uh, in The Voice and, uh, and he sees my arrangements. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's <laughs> yeah. wild. Yeah. Cool. But he, he got to work with Aretha Franklin more recently. Mm. There you go. He's getting around, yeah. Thank you so much for spending the time with us, Adi, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do this again and, and get even more stories and, and discussion going. We, we got to have you back. We I would love that. We definitely got to have you back because this was so enlightening, and, uh, and so it was great to hear your perspective and, and hear from, about your teachers because was, it was really enlightening, and so thank you for sharing all that. Absolutely, and you know, I find myself to be the ever student, so I'm still looking up at my teachers and uh, would love to be something close to what they did and do you know thank you so much i really really enjoyed our conversation tonight thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode be sure to subscribe through itunes or wherever you get your podcast email us your questions at the arrangers podcast at gmail.com be sure to find us on facebook and on twitter with the handle at the arrangers pod happy writing and hope to see you next time